0: everyone, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about heart failure management, and I'm delighted to be interviewing Professor Kazem Rahimi from Oxford, and he's recently published a trial with many co-authors which is entitled Home Monitoring with Technology-Supported Management in Chronic Heart Failure, a Randomised Trial. We talk about home monitoring and different digital approaches to heart failure. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Please feel free to spread the word about the podcast, subscribe, like, all that stuff, helps us reach new listeners enjoy the show perhaps we could start off by asking you to introduce yourself for the heart podcast audience
1: thanks for the invitation i'm james i'm kazem rahimi i'm professor of cardiovascular medicine and population health at the university of oxford
0: and kazem i wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about a paper that you've published recently which is all about home monitoring in heart failure Can you give me some background to the study and what motivated you to go ahead and do the work?
1: Sure. The the background to this is, as uh, you know, James, that um, heart failure, whilst it is a chronic condition, we tend to look at it um, as an acute problem. So if you look at literature across the world, what we see is that um, the treatment of patients with heart failure tends to focus around the initial period of diagnosis or hospitalization. And when one looks at um, what happens 30 days afterwards, there's virtually almost no modification of treatment. Um, And that was shown in a a recent paper that we published last year in PLOS Medicine, where in a sense titration of medications after 30 days came to a halt. And even the transition of the diagnosis being recorded in primary care records is uh, less than optimal. So the background here was that that we've got essentially a gap between evidence and practice, in particular for for the chronic phase of the heart failure treatment. Um, And the idea was, can we bridge that gap with the use of um, technology?
0: And we know that if patients are on guideline-directed medical therapy, they do have better outcomes, don't they?
1: Precisely, and there is a, a lot of evidence, both from randomized clinical trials but also supportive evidence from observational literature to suggest that um, adherence to evidence-based therapies um, will, in short as well as long-term, improve patient outcomes.
0: And do you have any insight into why there are gaps in, you know, patients being up titrated or even started on classes of medications that have been shown to improve outcomes? What's the issue, do you think?
1: Well, again, there are sort of some um, studies that have looked into that in more detail than what we have done. But in a sense, it, in part it is related to the, the way our health services are organized, where much of the specialist service is concentrated around hospitals and the general services in, in, in primary care. And from primary care's perspective, uh, really there, there, is enough, there isn't enough ex- expertise um, on looking at a you know, range of conditions um, as a whole. Um, So on average, a a GP might see just a few or a handful of heart failure patients per year. So they don't feel comfortable in uh, managing complex conditions such as heart failure that requires, as you know, gradual titration of medication and uh, frequent monitoring. So that is part of that, and obviously resource plays into that as well. Um, You know, having to see patients as specialists frequently is something that would strain um, health services resources.
0: And can you tell me about the types of digital intervention that might help to improve this?
1: Yes, I mean, in theory, I mean, you would assume that digital interventions are ideally suited to to bridge that gap because much of the monitoring um, is a sort of a repetitive task that does not necessarily require a specialist. I mean, monitoring the vital signs of a patient, the, the weight and blood pressure, following a uh, almost a rule based algorithm for optimizing treatment. These are sort of repetitive tasks that you could, in a sense, use computers to assist you with. Um, And this is essentially the the idea behind it. If one looks at it, what has been happening before, obviously, technology can do other things more efficiently than uh, we as human beings can do. And that is, you know, for instance, training. Um, um, You know, if you look at what we do in clinical practice. Uh, for us as physicians is quite repetitive to tell the patients over and over again what heart failure means and what are the cornerstones of management. Uh, but from patient's perspective, obviously, a lot of them listen to that only once. Mm. So, you know, this is essentially where technology can come in and assist with those um, repetitive tasks. What I also can do technology where we are not good at it is estimating risk by um, pulling different sources of information about patients' health status and essentially calculating a risk score that allows better uh, monitoring of um, patient status and tailoring treatment um, to to individuals.
0: And I guess you might define two different kinds of digital uh, support systems or interventions. You've got implantable devices, haven't you, which is still very much in the research phase, I, I guess. And then you've got more... Like you said, you know, algorithms that suggest you need to increase the dose of ARBs or ACE. What you need to do when the weight increases, diuretic, that kind of things.
1: Yeah, precisely. I mean, from the technology point of view, making that dichotomy of um, implanted devices versus non-invasive de- devices is a, is a good one, um, and um, in, in fact, the the better evidence currently is for the implanted devices. You know, if you look at, for instance, the CHAMPION trial that tested the CardioMEMS device, it showed a, a dramatic um, decrease in uh, hospitalization and death in patients with heart failure. And to a large extent, that was through you know, an algorithm that monitored pulmonary artery pressure and tailored the diuretic um, therapy um, for, for, for individuals. I mean, in theory, the non-invasive systems could be the same thing. Um, And in addition to that, more, I mean, as I said, you know, things like patient education could be added to that. Um, Treating patients' comorbidities is something that they could at the same time. And we know that, you know, heart failure patients tend to be complex. Um, You know, if you look at the data in the UK on presentation, on the first presentation, people with heart failure tend to have an average of about four comorbidities, four major comorbidities. Mm. And, And this is, you know, again, where technology could come in and, Uh, look at um, uh, treatment and that would potentially be covered for the non-invasive systems but you know the evidence for the non-invasive systems is less strong and a bit conflicting compared with a few studies such as you know the pa pressure monitoring that we have as invasive models
0: and can you tell us a little bit about the current study the, the support hf is that what it's called or is it support hf2 i couldn't quite tell from the paper
1: yeah, it is, it is support HF2, which builds on support HF or support HF1. Okay. Um, and that study was, you know, if you look at the literature, what has been the problem with some of the non-invasive heart failure monitoring systems, one of the key challenges that investigators have been facing, that the systems have not been widely used by the patients, So that, you know, if you develop a monitoring system where people don't like it or for whatever reason don't use it, obviously, we cannot expect to see the desired effect. So learning that lesson, we started first with support HF1 that was entirely focused on developing a non-invasive system that our average heart failure patients, as you know, you know, in the UK, average age of about 76, uh, were comfortable using and liked using Um, So that was about developing tablet computers and apps mounted on them that enabled them to learn about their heart failure, communicate with the research team at any time, and also connected with Bluetooth devices to a, a weighing scale and a blood pressure monitor that would automatically essentially pull the information from those devices and send it through the cloud to the the research team to be able to monitor the the, the system. So that was, in a sense, in that support HF1. And the results were quite encouraging. I mean, vast number of patients have never used a touch pad device and uh, were initially uncomfortable with it. But at the end of the study, they didn't want to give the system away. (laughs) And, and, you know, because they felt connected, they felt, you know, Mm. precisely what I've said earlier, that, you know, gap that exists in care, they felt that someone now looks at the data, if there is something, um, someone would alert them, and they they find it incredibly, you know, reassuring, in particular, after being given a diagnosis where the name itself is quite scary. Right. Right. so, so that was support HF1, and that led to support HF2, where we want to just say now that we know it works from patients' point of view, does it work also from the healthcare providers' point of view? And can we improve uh, medication um, utilization and prescription um, in people with heart failure?
0: So what was the hypothesis that you were testing in this latest study, support HF2, Kazem?
1: So the hypothesis was that can a uh, home monitoring system that consists of the, the hardware that I described um, provide um, that, you know, that provides a decision support to clinicians, that is you know general practitioners, uh, improve adherence to um, guideline recommended therapy in patients with heart failure compared with a system that uses pretty much the same hardware um, and, you know, enables this in, in the same way people to learn about heart failure, but does not aim to change patients' medication.
0: Okay, so in a sense, you had a, a control group, but you didn't label it as such, right? You used a clever way of labeling it, which I think was was really interesting.
1: Yeah, precisely. I mean, and that was, again, learning the lesson from some of the previous studies and the criticism of those studies was that, you know, many of the... Um, digital trials in the past have used a usual care control. Um, And the problem with that is that, you know, you you get not only the effect of the intervention, but also potentially the placebo effect on top of it, uh, where simply the attention that people in the intervention group receive could explain the differences between the outcomes of the two groups to essentially eliminate that attention effect the, the the control group in this study received pretty much the same devices, so from patients' perspective, they could not tell whether they are in intervention or control group, so in a, in a sense, it was partially blinded. And only what we did with the information differed, and the, the key difference between the two groups, as I said, was that in the intervention group, we use the information collected by them to tailor, essentially, the, the, the treatment and make specific recommendations to a general pr- practitioners about up titrating, starting new medications or stopping new med- st- stopping some of the uh, older medications.
0: And in the control group, you just let the, the GPs do what they would do normally. Is that right? You did? Precisely. precisely. Okay, fine. And what kind of patients did you recruit and, and how many?
1: Um, so, the, the intention was to recruit people who, who are likely to gain benefit from uh, remote monitoring. Again, learning the lesson from some of the previous studies, um, where, for instance, some studies have included people who were already on optimal medical therapy. Obviously, in that case, there is very little that technology can um, add. Or when people are at very low risk of anything happening to them, again, you cannot discern a difference between the groups. So, here in this study, we focused on people who Uh, were at high risk of admission to hospital and mortality and or um, had an opportunity for for treatment optimization. We did not restrict it to people with uh, reduced ejection fraction. So any type of heart failure could come in, but the intention was that at least two thirds of patients were patients with uh, reduced ejection fraction. So that was essentially the patient population and we recruited um, 200, I think two patients uh, were randomized, um, half in each arm.
0: So just over 200 total uh, and half in each arm. Okay. And what what was the primary endpoint or primary outcome of the trial?
1: So we had um, two co primary endpoints. Um, One was um, optimal medical therapy, Mm -hmm. um, that we essentially um, developed a score for it. And I explained what that is. And the second one was um, the physical score of Minnesota living with heart failure. Okay, um the, the optimal medical therapy, in a sense, the way we estimated it, that was prior to randomization, we looked at uh, patients' um, health status, you know, what type of heart failure uh, did they have, what type of treatments were they receiving, and also what comorbidities they had, things like, you know, atrial fibrillation um, and, uh, you know, previous stroke and so on were taken into account to decide what additional treatment people should be on ideally as per heart failure guidelines. And that gave us in a sense for each individual a denominator of the number of targets that we should be aiming for. Um, And um, so that essentially was locked in prior to randomization and after randomization only in people in the intervention group, uh, we gradually aim to essentially, get to the optimum um, target for that individual. And I said in the control group, we did not have um, any active um, treatment management.
0: Okay, so you had what you label as the opportunity score, um, which you, you used as, as you say, a co-primary endpoint. In other words, how close did the patients get to optimal medication? Um, and you also factored in the number of opportunities you had to change the medication or alter it.
1: Exactly. So it's a bit unusual and sometimes people struggle to get their head round but in a sense if you look at an individual let's say you've got a patient in your clinic and you look at you know what are the tablets that this patient should be on both for heart failure and as I said for some of the chemo comorbidities that becomes your denominator and how many are they taking at the moment that becomes your numerator and that gives you essentially a score and if you express it in percentage zero means you're not taking anything at all and and 100% means that you are on optimal therapy. And for for, uh, patients with reduced ejection fraction, the the, the decision about whether they are on the target uh, treatment was not binary, zero, one, but in that uh, group, we also look at um, the dose of the treatment that they were receiving for disease-modifying therapies, um, again, as a sort of a fraction of a percentage.
0: So presumably, if somebody had a contraindication to, to one of the medications or impaired renal function or some reason that they couldn't escalate the dose, that was also accounted for?
1: Yes, precisely. I mean, at the, at the beginning, we asked people for any uh, tolerability issues or contraindications, and that was taken into account. With renal dysfunction, that is a good point. We did not have a restrict, uh exclusion criteria or removing that target on the patients based on the previous literature that a lot of the time, in Mm. fact, that is the concern that general practitioners have with impaired renal function and avoid those up titration. Um, But there's good evidence to suggest if, you know, the the titration is done slowly on the monitoring, people do tolerate it and they fare better.
0: Um, So there was no
1: absolute cutoff, if you like, for for, um, renal function.
0: And can you summarize the results for us?
1: Yes, looking at the uh, primary endpoint of um, opportunity score or optimal medical therapy, uh, what we found was a non-significant improvement of 8%. um, As I said, you know, optimum being um, 100%, uh, 8% um, difference uh, between the the groups, which was a non-significant statistically. Um, And for the co-primary endpoint of quality of life or the physical component of the quality of life, again, there was no, difference between the group. We had also a range of secondary endpoints, um, such as, uh, you know, blood BNP, heart rate, potassium, and most of them went in the right direction, but we were not expecting them to, uh, you know, reach a level of statistical significance, given that the study was not powered for it. So overall, a, a neutral study finding.
0: That, I mean, that's an interesting result in itself, isn't it? Do you, can you think of any reasons why the study might have been neutral, given that the patients had, you know, tailored, optimization of therapy was it a sample size issue do you think or, or some other reason
1: yeah it's a, it's a great point i mean i think sample size plays a role um i mean the 200 patients uh we did not have power to detect uh, an eight percent difference what what we showed in, in our point estimate you know we had power to study for a 20 percent okay uh, difference so that could explain it So one could imagine if the sample size would have been larger, potentially we would have uh, reached a level of statistical significance, but that would still beg the question whether that 8 or 10% is clinically relevant. Um, And in my view, probably not, uh, which, you know, takes us further about what else is going on. Why did not, didn't we achieve um, our our target? Um, And, uh, you know, looking at the study design as is always the case in, uh, digital health interventions, obviously, technology is just a component of the work. I mean, we try our best to integrate it within the healthcare system, so that it is is not disjointed with what is happening. But what we found that even with very specific recommendations on um, treatment modification, we were still reliant on um, general practitioners, to make that change. And okay. we know from previous studies that there is obviously a delay. Sometimes that recommendation may be followed, sometimes may not be followed. Um, but th- that I think was one of the key challenges that we are facing, that from the central recommendation system to patients, there was at least um, one step. Um, sometimes in a, in a multi-center clinical trial, so that was in you know, seven centers in the UK. Um, there are other people in between who might have a different opinion or not be as responsive as one wants it to be and that led probably to that you know more modest difference than what we would have expected
0: i guess you could also look at it the other way that maybe the general practitioners did a better job than you're expecting in terms of uh, improving the the control groups um medications
1: yes you know that that would be also a possibility, but the results did not um, suggest that. I mean, if okay. one looks at the um, opportunity score and we measured it at the level of the individual at the beginning of the study and then again um, at the end of the study, um, there was hardly any change in the in the control group and okay. most of the change was in the intervention group. So that did not explain it.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, what might you do differently Next time, if if there's going to be a next time, and I assume there'll be other work in this in this area from from your group.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as I said, I mean, one lesson that we learned was that um, you know having too many intermediaries essentially impedes us of testing how such an integrated system could work. So mm. if there was if there was one key thing that we would be doing differently in the next design, and I think we discussed this in the in the paper that would be to just test how would be a direct central um, prescription of drugs and monitoring then informing the GPs, but without asking them to actually take action would work. Mm. Um, So that would be essentially more fully test the system. Um, Obviously it has some questions about clinical governance and what would happen, but we are actually working on a blood pressure lowering uh, trial that we are about to embark on um, in the next few weeks. Where in that one, such a model will be adopted uh, where essentially the intervention is done all centrally. That would be obviously one key difference that um, uh, you know, we would love to test. The second one would be the sample size. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the outcome that we chose, we knew that this is not optimal. That doesn't capture really the, the, the full spectrum of the benefits that patient might gain from monitoring. Um, as I said, for instance, earlier, if you look at the, the invasive monitoring systems um, and even some of the non invasive um, systems that have shown a, um, a positive result, um, they, don't nec- they don't necessarily show a significant difference in um, adherence to treatments. Uh, you know, A lot of the difference comes down to fluid status monitoring and um, change in dose of diuretics. And those obviously are not, because we don't have any absolute target for that, they're not measured in um in an opportunity school so in a sense bypassing those surrogate endpoints and going directly to clinical endpoints would be something that uh would be appropriate in my view to test but that gets us to the challenge of um uh, you know securing funding for such trial i mean to you know in order to show a difference in clinical endpoint uh, the trial would need to have um probably a few thousand patients um, involved. and um, I'm sure you're familiar mm. James, with the cost of clinical trials and yes uh, indeed for, for for such pragmatic studies where there is very little financial incentive from the industry, it is very hard to just secure um, those millions of pounds required for testing the hypothesis. Yeah,
0: I mean it can it can be done as we've got colleagues in the uk have carried out very nice trials in that kind of area imaging for chest pain, that sort of thing but as you say, Uh, it is a tricky thing to get funded
1: yeah
0: brilliant well thank you so much for your time uh, professor rahimi it's been really good to talk to you and the paper will be made freely available if it's not already for a few weeks after the podcast uh, comes out and i hope you'll come back and tell us all about the blood pressure uh, study at some stage in the future
1: thank you james